Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, July 16, 2023. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. The share ID numbers for Friday, July 14th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 20,000. 442, that's 20442. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 20,443, that's 20443. This morning, A Vision for You presents Emotional Sobriety? What the heck is that? For members of 12-step fellowships, such as Overeaters Anonymous, the 12 steps serve a specific purpose. According to AA co-founder Bill Wilson, their author, the 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink, or for you and I, compulsively overeat and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. In other words, the 12 steps can keep us, as recovered compulsive overeaters, food sober and happy. The 12 steps are designed to bring about a spiritual awakening, a change in the way we think, a change in the way we feel, and most importantly, a change in the way we behave. Our selfish, self-centered pursuits have been subdued and redirected. Our spiritual awakening instills in us a new perspective. With the formal completion of Step 12, we enter a new phase of recovery. The compulsion is gone. A spiritual awakening has occurred, And the 12 promises are coming true in greater depth. Armed with a set of spiritual tools in the form of the 12 steps, we can now face and effectively handle the challenges of life that had once overwhelmed us. More than that, we can achieve serenity and enjoy a rich and rewarding life, full of returns on our investments. Yes, emotional sobriety is attainable and sustainable. Recovery means adopting a way of life that requires continuous commitment and effort. We can and must continue to let go of fear, resentment, and selfishness put aside selfish demands, practice being loving, and become more connected to God and our family, friends, and fellows. We now look for continued emotional balance, emotional sobriety, and increased joy in living and fulfillment from things with real and lasting value. Awakened to the presence of God, our lives become filled with new purpose and meaning. 
Joining us today to share on the topic of emotional sobriety is Larry Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from Chicago. Larry is a beloved member of Overeaters Anonymous and a vision for you, continually devoted to carrying the message of recovery, and it's with great appreciation and always a joy to welcome Larry Kay to the line. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much. What a beautiful introduction. Boy, you, what jumped out at me, by the way, I'm Larry Kay, recovered uh, compulsive reader from Chicago. Leah, you mentioned um, two things. You mentioned attainable and sustainable. And um, boy, that jumped out at me. And yeah, for something to be attainable and sustainable, it's, uh, it's going to require some dedication, right? It's going to require some implementation. Of, of what's effective to make it attainable and sustainable. And um, so, yeah, I think you characterized that really well. So thank you for that. And um, I want to start out by emphasizing that, uh, you know, like all of us, I'm still learning. And, and, I'm, and I'm not seeking, when we talk about emotional sobriety, we're going to look at, you know, Bill's letter that he wrote, but I'm not seeking to pathologize uh, human pain and suffering, right? In other words, when when confronted with life's stuff, you know, whatever it is, the divorce, the death of a loved one, you know, the traumas, the financial insecurities, all these different things that we face, you know, these existential things, the, the, the things that are concerned with human existence. When we look at those things and we deal with those things, they're going to result in feeling something, right? That's human. So, you know, we'll talk about what emotional sobriety may be. We'll take a look at the big book. We'll talk about what it isn't. What the heck is it? I, I we'll, we'll try to figure it out together, right? And and how do we um, attain it and, and have something sustainable? So emotional sobriety is a concept for me anyway. It's not a state of being where I'm insulated from feeling, you know, because I'm a human being. I'm, I'm not going to be insulated from feeling, nor would I want to be. You know, there's good emotions, I guess we call it, and bad emotions, Um you know, if you will, and and there's a normal spectrum of human despair that, that we've seen throughout history. So that therein lies, you know, the the existential nature of it. Maybe it serves some purpose. We'll we'll take a look at that. You know, I mean, I mean, people. What happens? People die as they get older. You know, we have heartbreaks. We've we've all had disappointing situations in life, and and yet this practical program of of spiritual action teaches me each day about transcendence and among other things you know the 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 human condition is that of of one of them is is that of emotions and feelings you know both positive and negative so you know to illustrate is is we try to unpack emotional sobriety for example i was thinking about this i don't want to be insulated i don't want to be neutral from my ability to feel um i don't know the divine excitement that you know, when I think back when, when Beth was born, some 20, oh my gosh, 27, 28 years ago, right? The divine excitement that burst forward when observing her being born, you know, resulted in, in, in a, an onrush of tears of joy. I, I don't want to be insulated and neutral from the emotions that burst forward on that day, right? And I don't want the neutrality from feeling the spark of anxious um, concern my cell phone, it blared the other day at around midnight. Now, i got to tell you, I don't stay up till midnight. That's for sure, right? Um, 
<laughs> I'm an eight o'clock guy, but maybe a little bit later. But anyway, it's around midnight and I'm in bed and the uh, the cell phone starts screaming, blaring, and I have it on silent. And the only time it could do that is if there's an emergency warning system. At least my phone's set up for that. I don't know about yours. And there was a, the other day there was tornado warnings in the Chicago area, you know, not far from me. And um, no, do I want to be numbed out from the, the, the initial feeling of the anxious feeling as it blared forth, you know, and, um, and I took a look and I looked outside and I, you know, I heard the, the uh, tornado sirens blaring and uh, for several minutes. No, because it moves me to action, right? Now, today I can tell you that action was balanced. I'm in a secure location. Right? It's not a perfect location, and if I was directly hit by a tornado at my, at my home here, um, that wouldn't be a good thing, right? But, but, it, but it, it prompted me to action. I do not want to be numbed out from the feelings, the human existential feelings of that, of that anxiety, that, that anxious concern when, when, uh, you know, when that happens. I don't want to be separated from feeling. Why? Because that adrenaline in my body was uh, was 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 there to get me to take some action. It was equipped to produce, to move me to action in the, in the face of potential threat. Now, that being said, if I couldn't fall back asleep ever, <laughs> I've been up since the other night, you know, um, that might be a problem, right? So we're seeking balance here. But I, just as I was thinking about it, nor would I want to be spared the divine capability to grieve, uh, just grieve loss with tears, with sadness, because in that situa situation, which is personal for each of us, you know, can, can we at least agree that, you know, my, my, when, I, when I have loss of any kind, divorce, breakup, death of a loved one, you know, my proverbial garden has been wounded, and perhaps my tears serve as kind of a weeding process. If, if it comes to me, the sadness, as it does, weeding of the garden so the sunlight can break through again. Again, you know, bottom line for me, my expectation that I have to be somehow protected from uncomfortable feelings, to be insulated from these feelings as the result of the implementation of the 12 steps, is like expecting to chase rainbows in the desert. It, it's, you're not going to find them, right? And, uh, and I have um, my expectation needs to be calibrated, right? So this leads me to the notion that Perhaps there is a purpose to human suffering. And for me, the purpose of human suffering is really akin to, you know, to the refining process of fire that molds raw iron into, you know, some sort of resilient steel, a blade of steel. It, it challenges our strength. It tests our resilience. It shapes me. Uh, and, and, and through that shaping process, I'm, I'm more capable of, of having empathy for others and wisdom through these life experiences and ultimately love, which is my, my primary purpose, I think, is, is love in my life. Now that said, <laughs> I will tell you for most of my adult life, or a good portion of my adult life, I think I took better care of my car than I did of my spiritual condition. <laughs> can, you, can you relate to that? Um, you know, boy, boy my, I, it just was drilled into me. The oil change at 3,000 miles back then and uh, you know, and just the air in the tires. And meanwhile, my spiritual condition, I wasn't checking the air there. I wasn't, uh, you know, looking at those things. So I took better care of the car. And if I can impress one thing upon you today, 
It's that only, for me, for me, it's only a connection with the higher power, devoid of earthly dependencies. We'll take a look at dependencies. You know, when I have that, can I experience the enlightenment that, that's associated with attaining and sustaining this idea of emotional sobriety? I need to, you know, to let go of some of these dependencies and get them in balance. And to the extent that I can maintain, you know, or to the extent that I would maintain, say, attachments to human outcomes, you know, what you're going to do, what you're going to think today, then you know what happens? I continue to stagger. I stagger. I, I, I sort of, you know, in the muck and in the state of emotional imbalance and instability. And for me, in my experience, the state of instability is, 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 for me, it was characterized by impulsive, erratic, emotional responses that weren't grounded in a state of well-being. So, you know, I might be functional. I have a job, a home, a partner. But in those cases, I remained tethered to emotional volatility or, or emotional repression, you know, numbness and the dependencies and the fear. And so if you'd ask me, how are you doing, Larry? Well, you tell me. <laughs> I'm only as well as you tell me I am. And that sounded eventually like insanity to me when the, when, the, when the fog began to clear as I began to work the steps, even while maintaining sobriety from my alcoholic foods. So first, let, let's start with a, a kind of a historical context that the letter Bill wrote on emotional sobriety, because in 19, and I think I have these years right as far as I can research, but in 1956, Bill Wilson wrote a letter to a depressed friend, because Bill suffered from depression. And he was offering him assistance in, in, in sort of understanding his depression. This was someone in program in AA at the time. And this was the sort of the second mention of emotional sobriety that Bill had considered. He first mentioned emotional sobriety in the, in the, uh, in the 12 and 12 uh, when discussing the, the effect of working the steps. But in the letter, Bill gave an account of what he had discovered about the nature of his own depression and its underlying causes, and as, as best he, as he could tell, right? And at the time that he wrote this letter, and it was later published in The Grapevine, which is the, you know, the, the magazine in AA that they, that they utilized in 1958, he published it. He had approximately 20 plus years of sobriety when he penned this letter. And I found that the, the, the content is very rich. It's both spiritual and has some psychological insights that I appreciate. And it, and it kind of reveals his personal struggles with his, his own emotional dependency upon others for his, his self-esteem. And so when I, when I, where I was going with this is I wanted to take a look at what was going well in Bill's life by 1956, 1957, 58, when the letter was, was written. Remember, Bill, Bill Wilson took his last drink on December 11th, 1934. And, and, and he didn't know it at the time, but he was going to start a, you know, a new chapter in his life. And, and so by 1956, he'd have roughly 22 years of back-to-back -back abstinence. That was good. I mean, and he, he remained sober through his passing in January of 1971. He, he died uh, on his 53rd wedding anniversary. So we'll talk about that his marriage, too. It was a good thing. But if we look at that, was really good. And, and AA was established, as we know, in Akron, Ohio in 1935. Bill uh, met Dr. Bob, um, and, um, and, and, and what a great 
pairing. We, you and I wouldn't be on this line today if it wasn't uh, for that chance encounter, seemingly chance encounter, right? And, and as we know, the, the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Anonymous was published on April 10, 1939. And let's just say Bill wrote a lot of it, most of it. I think it was divinely inspired, but, but he wrote most of that. But then, here, so that was really good stuff. And he always wanted to be this number one guy, you know. And, and then in March of 1941, you know, the Saturday Evening Post, such a popular um, uh, magazine at that time. It featured an article about AA by a guy by the name of Jack Alexander, and the response was enormous. And by the close of that year, the membership in AA had jumped to about 6,000, and the number of, of groups uh, multiplied in proportion. And, and of course, we know the fellowship expanded throughout the U.S. and, and elsewhere. And, 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 you know, it, and so this was really positive. And in 1939, when that book was published, you know, Bill and Lois, his wife, uh, they were forced to leave their home. They were living in Lois's uh, uh, parents' home, and, and both Lois's father and mother had died, and, and Bill and Lois could not afford to go anywhere except to the homes of, of other friends. They did that for about two years. But in 1941, they moved into the home that we know now as uh, Stepping Stones. Maybe you've been to Stepping Stones. That was an amazing thing. A guy, I mean, it was great in his life. I, I mean, it took the, they were able to, to afford this. It was kind of gifted in some ways, but they, they were able to purchase it and own that home. And, uh, I mean, what a tremendous thing, right? And in 1950, we had the first international convention in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, Dr. Bob made his last appearance. Um, you know, we saw the 12 traditions adopted. Uh, which is so important. You know, there were, the point is there were good things happening over that 20-some year period of time. And by 1955, if you look at the membership in AA, they had about 7,000 groups serving several hundred thousand members. Um, this was, I mean, he, Bill was a guy who always wanted to be that number one man, and he had fame you know, within this, within AA, but elsewhere, you know, beyond his wildest imagination, you know, that his life was going pretty good. And let's not forget that Bill married Lois in 1918. They had been married through all of this crazy insanity of his alcoholism. And at that point in 1956, you know, 40 years of marriage, she stuck by him all this time. So I mentioned all these things that despite all of these things, the growth of AA, his spiritual experience that eradicated the desire to drink, right? Bill was still plagued by depression. You know, in fact, after returning, you know, he and Lois, they went on a kind of a tour of the various AA groups at the time and throughout the U.S., and they visited a lot of these. Bill just, they got back, and he just collapsed again into a chronic depression in about 1951. And he remained depressed for the next two years, he, he suffered these, these episodes. And I can relate, not so much on the depression, but I've had an anxiety disorder that really, you know, came up for me in, when I was 19 years of age. And, um, and so like Bill, you know, I was plagued even having a spiritual transformation. At times, just as Bill was, you know, had some, you know, chronic depression, I, I've had anxiety at times and it's, you know, and, and, and you know, but, you know, emotional sobriety, what, what the heck is that? Well, if we pick up on this theme <clears throat> on the letter, 
he writes this letter, The Next Frontier, Emotional Sobriety. And I'm not going to read. You can, you can find the letter on emotional sobriety. You can Google it. Um, but just to hit some key points, you know, he, he starts off and he says, I think many, many oldsters who have put our AA booze cure to severe but successful tests will find they often lack emotional sobriety. Perhaps they will be the spearhead for the next major development in AA, the development of much more real maturity and balance, which is to say humility in our relations with ourselves, with our fellows, and with God. And he, he goes on to say those adolescent urges that so many of us have for top approval, perfect security, and perfect romance urges quite appropriate to age 17 prove to be an impossible way of life when we are at age 47 or 57. And since AA began, he says, I've taken immense wallops in all these areas because of my failure to grow up emotionally and spiritually. So there is Bill just acknowledging, despite all the good things that I mentioned that happened, he, anywhere he went in the country to any AA group, they welcomed him, they adored him by and large. And, uh, and, and, and he, you know, and despite all of that, he was lacking this, this, this emotional sobriety. And he, he goes on to say, how shall our unconscious, from which so many of our fears, compulsions, and phony aspirations still stream, be brought into line with what we actually believe, know, and want. And, and then he alludes to his depression. He said, last autumn, several years back, depression having no really rational cause at all, almost took me to the cleaners. I began to be scared that I was in for another long chronic spell. Considering the grief I've had with, my, with depressions, it wasn't a bright prospect. I kept asking myself, why can't the 12 steps work to release depression? You know, and, and so, Bill, I remember when I was about 20, I, I, I was in a, uh, a car accident, and, uh, and, I, and I recovered physically from that car accident, but they told me that it was pretty severe and that I would probably have some emotional issues. They, they see this, you know, very commonly, and so they – they, they told me and my parents at the time, you know, we, we, we recommend, you know, maybe he takes um, a semester off of college, you know, because physically he'll be fine. He's recovering beautifully there, but, but emotionally we just think that maybe just taking that time. And, of course, I didn't want that. So I just pushed and, and I went back to college. And that's when, you know, the anxiety hit me uh, to that panic level <laughs> at a certain point. Now, I'm not saying that the car accident caused that or, you know, it, it just seemed that it, maybe it, it was the right recipe to bring that about. But the reason I bring it up is to say that I remember when I experienced that and I, and I went to see a, uh, a psychiatrist and we were talking and I, I was really, one of the emotions that I was dealing with was this notion of why me, you know, and, um, and, and, and we were discussing that and he, he, he raised a point that has stuck with me to this day. So I've used it with other people, um, with other conditions. And, and, and by the way, this was not a crass, uh, you know, this was a very supportive, warm, loving guy, as I remember. This, you know, guy, probably someone my age now back then, but he was, he was kind of like a father, maybe grandfather figure. But to the, to the question of why me, he said, Larry, I think I have a better question. Why not you? <laughs> you know, he said with, with a warm a smile. So with, with any challenges, why not you? 
what, what, do, do, did I want it to be my best friend, uh, a sibling? You know, so, so to the point with, and Bill, Bill also experienced some of the, the, the why me sort of things with this depression. Perhaps you've experienced that even with having this disease as a compulsive reader. You know, why me? Well, why not you? You know, we, we will we, we'll delve a little bit into that and what that means that this has become our greatest ally and our greatest ability to help others. But, but Bill goes on and he said, suddenly I realized what the matter was. My basic flaw had always been dependence, almost absolute dependence on people or circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. Failing to get these things, according to my per, uh, perfectionistic dreams and specifications, I had fought for them. And when defeat came, so did my depression, right? So because he, he, I, he says I had over the years undergone a little spiritual development, the absolute, absolute quality of these frightful dependencies have, had never before been so starkly revealed. And so he goes on to talk about that, and he said, plainly, I could not avail myself of God's love until I was able to offer it back to him by loving others as he would have me. And I couldn't possibly do that so long as I was victimized by false dependencies. So this theme of dependencies comes up for me again and again here. And if we dive into this, you know, we, so for me, emotional sobriety is where we move from dependency to spiritual maturity. And one of the things that makes uh, emotional sobriety so difficult is, is the, you know, the patterns of behavior, the, the sort of habitual ways we come to think about things. You know, we all have a perceptive lens in which we see the world. And, and, and we, we have to really become aware of those things so we can begin to challenge them because, you know, as we've heard something along this, these lines, that the consciousness that has created a lot of the problems and in our lives cannot be the same consciousness that solves the problems. In fact, I would suggest to you that no problem can be solved from the consciousness that created it. You know, my consciousness has to be raised. It, it has to be elevated. My consciousness has to be awakened, right? And that's what we're shooting for with the 12 steps is, is to become awakened, to become elevated in our consciousness. And so what happens in the first step is we have the opportunity to begin waking up. <laughs> and, that's, and, and, and we have to take affirmative action towards realizing a pathway that's going to help us discover a new way of life. And that's where the hope is found. That's where the hope is found. Because, you know, finding a new solution to being in this world um, it, until I become awakened, until my consciousness is elevated from this sort of perpetual state of sleep, you know, I'm awake, but I'm asleep, to an awakened awareness, I would suggest to you that we cannot recover from the seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And so uh, sometimes, you know, I've heard, and, and we, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be confrontational in, 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 in some of the different things we hear, but we, we hear it's a threefold disease. You know, we understand physical emotional, spiritual. But for me, and I certainly don't speak for OA as a whole, this is in fact really the, the more I'm in program a one-pronged disease, you know, a, one, a one-legged disease in the sense that, you know, it's a, it's a spiritual malady. From the doctor's opinion to the end of the chapter more about alcohol, alcoholism, 
What the big book discusses is the first part of step one, which states that we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, <clears throat> in our case, our alcoholic foods. Um, and, and we've discussed, we've studied, we've internalized material, you know, from the doctor's opinion. And, and we see how we are powerless over alcohol bodily, right? And we see on pages 23 through 43 that helps us to experience how we've been powerless mentally. Now, I'd like to think of a part of our disease, which is, 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 is not as discussed in, in as much depth, but is, is the spiritual malady. Because, you know, when I look at, you know, uh, describing what I mean by uh, threefold disease, you know, mind, body, and spirit, um, yes, I look at the allergy of the body and I look at the obsession of the mind, but I have to recognize that, um, that the spiritual malady is at the core. So it's, you know, it's agreed that the mental obsession is the part of our disease which leads me to the first bite. And the first bite triggers the phenomenon of craving. But what about the part of my disease that triggers the mental obsession in the first place? What about the part of my disease that triggers emotional obsession? You know, wh why is it that people who have remained abstinent from eating in OA for one year, two years, five, 10, 20 years or more, they go back to eating? And we know that the physical craving does not cause these people to eat because it's been, you know, we, we know it's medically proven that after a few days of not eating the alcoholic substance, it, it's, it's really processed out, out of the body. And if you've been in the OA fellowship for a while, for most people, the mental obsession dissipates. So why is it that after a long period of sobriety, you know, many people in our fellowship return to eating, even when they don't want to, you know, what is, what is the third fold you know, aspect of the disease and, um, and, you know, that they're, you know, that by closely examining the big book um, and looking at the 12 steps, you know, we see that missing piece, you know, so we have to address the spiritual malady. So um, for a long time, I thought my life was unmanageable because of all the crazy, insane things I did when eating, right? My weight went up significantly. I was hurting people when I didn't mean to failed relationships one after another, loss of jobs, uh, family dysfunction. And finally, someone explained to me that those things are not the insanity that the big book talks about, nor are those things why the alcohol's life becomes unmanageable. You know, of course, those things could be classified as unmanageability, but they're external unmanageability. The unmanageability that I'm concerned with in, 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 in looking at emotional sobriety is the inward unmanageability of our lives, the restlessness, the irritability, the, discon the discontentment that most alcoholics have before they even pick up the food, that inward unmanageability, you know, the, the, the untreated ism, and that's what I look at. So our book promises, as we know, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So the mental and physical factors of alcoholism are put into remission, if you will, after the spiritual malady is overcome, which means I'm still in danger of eating until I've had a spiritual awakening, whether I think so or, or not. And, you know, I come back to page 60. You know, we read it all the time, the description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas, that we were, A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives, 
B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, and C, that God would or could and would if he were sought. So if it's a physical disease, the main problems are going to center in our bodies. And if it were an emotional disease, because we're talking about this emotional sobriety, if this were primarily an emotional disease, then all we would need to do is treat the wounded emotions and our behaviors would, would, would just uh, naturally change. All we would need is some sort of therapeutic processing of these emotions. So when I look at all this, you know, what does emotional sobriety look like today? You know, being emotionally sober simply means that I'm comfortable being present with all my feelings without any one of those feelings defining or controlling me. And developing emotional sobriety is going to involve being adept at processing life's emotional ups and downs as they happen. So I have to build a healthy emotional balanced life, accepting the present as it is. I, today, I, I see struggle and grief as a natural part of life, and it, it offers me uh, an opportunity for personal growth. I don't uh, dwell on the past. You know, uh, I don't let other people's limited perceptions or expectations define my self-esteem or negatively impact my behavior, right? And so I, I, I can, how can I practice emotional sobriety? Well, one of the first things that I can do is for me, recognizing that, you know, the idea of, and we've all heard of self-actualization, right? And, you know, this idea of being all that you can be. And I had to recognize that self-actualization from a spiritual perspective, for me, it's a process of experiencing pain from life's challenges, challenges, you know, learning what the universe has to teach me, responding with course corrections in my behavior. I need to see this as kind of like a growth model because I'm going to learn from my failures just as much as I'm going to learn from my successes, probably more. And so what I, what I don't want to do is always look for the thing that takes the edge off of the uncomfortable feelings that serves, you know, because those uncomfortable feelings I found, they serve as the springboard to lasting change. So what I found is that, you know, we stunt our spiritual development when we don't use the difficult experiences that, that I need to, to foster change. You know, I, I'm not going to stop making the same mistakes over and over uh, until, you know, I, I need to, you know, I have to stop looking to take the edge off painful experiences. And, you know, I was thinking about this, you know, where I've heard someone say, where would we be if the uh, abolitionists, let's say, I'm just looking at something historical, if the abolitionists had been able to take the edge off you know, take the edge off a bit. Where would we be if the abolitionists had not gotten upset? You know, we, 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 we need to, to utilize these emotions uh, to take action. You know, where would I, you know, where would, where would we be if Susan B. Anthony, you know, they, they went to her and they said, you know, wherever you go, you, you create a lot of drama. You know, stop doing that. So many of us are on this sort of artificial chill mentality. Like we, we, we desperately need to find something to rid ourselves of any side of signs of anxiety or fear. And, you know, we look for a substance or behavior to, to sort of bypass, um, you know, these things rather than have kind of a spiritual bypass. Because my, my dependency on this necessity to bypass emotion 
it's going to fuel my need for more of the same. And that dependency, it's that dependency that actually strengthens the addiction. So when I look at Bill, you know, with regard to depression, you know, I get that we, you know, we live in a world of, you know, oftentimes depressing circumstances. You know, there's, there's poverty, there's climate change, there's wars. There, I mean, pick something, right, et cetera. And I don't want to pretend not to notice these things. If I, if I pretend not to notice these things to take the edge off, I'm, I'm probably not looking, right? Yet in the midst of those situations, if I'm not rejoicing in the hope and joy of recovery, if I'm not going to take the actions that will allow the power to come into my life, then I'm shortchanging this process. Because psychic pain, you know, the psychic pain that Bill experienced, they, they couldn't see his depression on a... Uh, on an MRI, we didn't have MRIs back then, but they couldn't see it on X-ray. Can't, we can't see psychic pain, but it sends a message just as much as physical pain. You know, when, when we break break our arm, you know, we can see that on an X-ray. Oftentimes, the bone has to be reset in order, you know, for it to heal properly. But with psychic pain, what I'd suggest is we have to reset the thinking that's leading to that psychic pain. And I'd suggest that psychic pain has an immune system, just like the body does. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, you've heard the canary in the coal mine. You know, the, the owner of the mine says, you know, there's something wrong with the canaries. And guess what? There, there wasn't anything wrong with the canaries. <laughs> they, they intuitively knew that they're in an unhealthy environment. You know, they're squawking about that. So, and so, too, with my anxiety, my depression, my unbalanced fear. It's sort of the psychic immune system that's crying out for healing and, and for the blueprint for the healing, which for me has been the 12 steps, continues to be the 12 steps. So my kind of not okayness is perhaps part of the internal warning system that leads me to change. Now, when I, you know, when, when I, when, when I look at suffering, there's a great philosopher that, that, that talked about suffering that um, just this, this, this notion that to live is to suffer. You know, you're born, <laughs> you're going to suffer. You're born in what? In labor, right? The, the mother goes through labor. And, but what's often left out of that equation is what this philosopher went on to elaborate, which is the notion that we can transcend our suffering when we find meaning in it. So clearly, when a child is born, there's great meaning in that. You know, and, and uh, we put great meaning on that. It comes intuitively, instinctively. So through that pain, there's transcendence through that pain, and we're able to, to, to give some meaning to it. So for me today, and I think that's what, I suspect that's what Bill was able, able to do over time. I mean, there's no perfect people in the world. So I, I, and I can't, you know, Bill's not here to, to talk about it. But I try to, you know, surmise that Bill, he had this depression, he talked about this next frontier of emotional sobriety. And, and this, again, it wasn't, he did not want to be numbed out from feeling anything, right? That's why when, when oftentimes we hear some debate perhaps about the normal buildup of human emotions. I'm not going to get into a whole debate, but I'm just going to say that, that all, all human beings experience the buildup of human emotion. Um, and and they, they could be, uh, when I think back in my life, um, and, and you can sort of take a look at yours, but it wasn't just the fears 
and the anxiety and the anger at times and the self-loathing at times that led me to the food. It wasn't just the buildup of those emotions that led me to the food. If I really unpacked it, it could be that, but oftentimes like Bill, um, it was the quote unquote negative emotions, uh, excuse me, the positive emotions that built up. So um, why was it, I'll just give you one example. Why was it in the midst of the joy, I, I played baseball as a kid and for number of years to college and you know there was great joy in those experiences for me I look back on all those times this great joy you know and and yet the the buildup of that joy in someone like me you may be different okay but in someone like me the great joy often led me to the food it, the buildup of that type of emotion and again it's not going to say that in the big book so if you're looking for a quote on the buildup of human emotion, no. But I'm just suggesting that if we begin to examine these things with an open mind, as I, I've tried to do, I say that I look at some of the factors, and just as Bill did, when when those different emotions, both, both positive and negative emotions, built up too much, I needed, I think, some sort of equilibrium. <laughs> and food brought me back down where I could just, Ah, you know that feeling? And that wasn't just negative emotions. And, just, you know, and, and it was positive emotions as well. So, yes, there's suffering in, in, in life. And, yes, we, to live is to suffer at times. Um, but when I look at that, you know, on page 124 in the big book, in the, fam the chapter of the family afterwards, bottom of the second paragraph, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past, is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery from them. I've said before that I don't think hearing my story, uh, you know, resulted in a spiritual awakening for anybody, right? And I, I, I would suggest uh, no one's story is going to result because the telling of that story is not, you know, it does not result in the, <laughs> the spiritual awakening. What it does, telling a story and identifying in because when Bill talked about his chronic depression, when I talk about my chronic anxiety, perhaps you, you know, there's someone on the line that also experiences this thing. And they can identify in and they can see, wow, you know, Bill Wilson, he had chronic depression. He had other, you know, things. He was able to, with God's help and these steps, to be able to transcend those things. Wow, Larry has, uh, has an anxiety disorder. Uh, gosh, didn't know that. So these steps and the implementation of the steps and the transcendent experience as a result of that, even someone like that. So we do need to identify in with those things. And then they become a, uh, a tremendous gift in God's hands. Because when I look back and I can talk about, for example, I've talked many times on podcasts and other things about my biggest number one resentment, which <laughs> I don't necessarily identify with anymore because it doesn't exist. Uh, today, but towards my mother, who did not protect me as a child from an abusive stepfather. So the resentment was tethered to my mother, right? And it was corroding me from the inside. It was corroding me like a cancer from the inside. And, um, and when I talk about that today, I talk about it in terms of at some point in the midst of working these steps, 
and I can't tell you exactly the particular day. You didn't give me a round of applause or give me a coin on that particular day. I don't remember the day that this happened. But that resentment dissipated. And that resentment eventually was lifted. And it was not a, you know, sort of sequential progression, you know, that I, as I, you know, the food down, you know, was down long enough that eventually it would leave me. As I lost weight, it would leave me. As I this, as I that. No, no, no. It has been sustainable over the years. And guess what? My mother, she's, my mother's in her 80s. She's changed, as we all change when we're older. But in many ways, she's very much the same type of person. You know, her personality is pretty much the same. But I've changed. And, and I think, you know, what happens there when I look at emotional sobriety, I think what it has is it finds us in some sense. So rather than looking for kind of a pixie dust uh, solution, how do I get that, Larry? What the heck is it? And how, I want that. How do I get that? And yeah, yeah, I've heard. Yeah, work the steps, work the steps. And, you know, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm tired of hearing work the steps. I've tried to work the steps. It's not working. Well, to many people, you know, my, my answer to that is, well, you're pro like me. I'm just guessing here. You're probably missing something along the way. You pro here are some things to look at, you know, and we, we talk, I, I try to keep it simple. We talk about, you want emotional sobriety? Are you still holding on to a resentment? Is there, is there a resentment that you polish like it is the, the finest of gold or silver? You won't let go of that resentment. I mean, you tell people that it's gone, but you know that it still plagues you. Is there a resentment you still hold on to? You know, is there an amend that I wouldn't, that, you, that you're not making? As long as in my subconscious awareness, maybe even in my unconscious awareness, you know, unconscious uh, self, as long as there is uh, some unfinished business, there's an amend that I will not make, and I can justify and I can rationalize why I'm not going to make this amend. But as long as there's that unfinished business, that to think that that doesn't affect my emotions at certain times and my behaviors, to think that that has nothing to do with my depression, my anxiety, my unbridled fear. You know, I, I mean, so th there's some common sense to this too. So that perhaps there's an amendment that I'm not willing to make. Maybe I'm getting a vicarious thrill through something. And I, I've spoken in the past because I've, I've heard it said about this notion of perfectionism or control, that I'm getting some sort of feel good, some sort of payback from that. And I'm, I'm keeping, I'm getting a thrill from maintaining control over others. And, um, and so when I hang on to those things, they probably are the fuel, all the fuel that's necessary to, uh, to thwart my emotional sobriety. You know, so there could be a resentment I don't let go of. There could be a vicarious thrill I won't put down. Um, you know, maybe, maybe I'm unwilling to make a, a particular amend. And, um, and I think for me also, you know, there, you know, dishonesty, right? All human beings are capable of dis dishonesty. But if, 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 you know, if we look at it, if I look at Bill's story, the, you know, 16 pages in total, right? 16 pages in total. The first eight pages, half the story, are about the descent into the hell of this disease. So this disease, it's, you know, half of the story. And if it wasn't, the story isn't picked up until he's around 20, 21 years of age, right? But half of the story is about 
the descent into this disease, the descent into <laughs> this emotional disturbance that led to his drinking over and over and over again, and the spiritual malady, this disconnection from this power source, right? The next eight pages are about, uh, are about the transcendence. The next eight pages are about his transformation and God's handiwork in, in using Bill to, to help others. So I think when I look at uh, dishonesty in, in my life in the past, um, that also fuels the, the, the opposite of um, emotional uh, sobriety. And I want to focus for a moment on the quote on page 417 in a story entitled Acceptance Was the Answer, because I think what's, what sticks with me is dependencies are, are a core here. Is, you know, where am I placing my dependencies? So I'm just going to read it. It says, acceptance is the answer to all of my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept my life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. So how do I practice this uh, each day as a demonstration of God's handiwork? You know, today I, I acknowledge reality. When I acknowledge my limitations, when I acknowledge my, my struggles, my, my mistakes, only then can I accept yours. I let go of control. When I allow things to just be as they are, rather than, you know, sort of attempting to, to force outcomes, what happens for me is God alleviates my stress. I'm, I'm free. There's a freedom. There's a freedom that comes in doing God's will. And when the big book states, uh, it says on the bottom of page 84 in, uh, into action that we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. I know that this, this came up as a question not long ago on, on the vision meeting. You know, we cease fighting anything, even alcohol. This doesn't mean that I have no opinion. This doesn't mean that I have no preference for the way things should be. Or, or it doesn't even mean that I don't take actions on, on earth in alignment with my values. So, for example, like I, I have a desire for justice, right? Maybe you do too. Or, or I have an interest in, in helping to alleviate the suffering in others. You know, perhaps you do as well. But I don't allow an outcome to consume me. God helps me not to allow an outcome to consume me. I'm, I'm released from the dependency of achieving some sort of outcome. And, and when the dependency of getting an outcome is released, then I know true freedom. And, you know, and, and each time that I let these dependencies go, there's layers of dependencies, right? Uh, the first dependency when I came into OA was putting down food. I couldn't imagine eating, uh, I'm just going to, you know, eating oatmeal or something like that. I couldn't imagine that. You, you have to, that's got to be sweetened up. That's got to be, I mean, I couldn't even imagine the possibility of that. 
it didn't make any sense to me, right? And so I, I think what happens is, is that was the first dependency we put down and, and, and we face the uncomfortability that's going to come. And each successive dependency that I can identify in the present moment that I'm able to put down and, it, and God, you know, takes that vacuum and fills it up with, some, with, with a dependency on him. Now, again, I am not, uh, you know, if you think about someone who replaces one dependency, one unhealthy dependency, I think the dependency, the God of my understanding wants a healthy dependency upon him. This is my belief, right? And, and what, you know, what sort of characterizes a healthy dependency is a balanced relationship with him where I am taking actions throughout the day. I'm trusting. I'm, yes, I'm praying. There's meditation to, to improve my conscious contact with God. But I am not so dependent on God that I can't pay my bills. I'm not so dependent on this higher power that I cannot have relationships with others. Oh, no, I've got to, this is God time. 24-7 is God time unless I'm sleeping. No, no, no. God doesn't, God wants me, this is my belief, wants me to recover, spiritually recover and have access to his power so I can live and I can live and love others, that I can help others, that I can live a balanced life where I can work and I can find meaning and I can be productive. Does God want me to be a workaholic? I have found no. God does not want, because that would deprive my family of interaction. It would deprive me of living fully. It would deprive me of uh, being able to help others and program and so forth. So it's kind of like a trust in that relationship. And each successive dependency is, uh, it's changed. It's changed over time. So I'm able to find peace in the present moment. I don't dwell on morbid self-reflection you know, of the past. Um, when the big book uh, you know, talks ab uh, about, on page 76, the seven-step prayer, you know, it's ingrained into my psyche. It's not just the words. I'm not saying I always feel a, a strong connection whenever I pray. But you know, when I say, my creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. Right? When I say that, or, or on, on page 86, you know, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. When I pray these things and I ask for these things, this is part and parcel for achieving emotional sobriety from moment to moment, day to day. It doesn't mean that as a person, I have to be happy and upbeat 24-7, right? In fact, AA often refers to people with an uh, unrealistic expectation of happiness and recovery as riding the pink cloud. The God of my understanding doesn't want me to ride the pink cloud because it, it's completely natural to feel a wide range of emotions on any given day and allow myself, you know, I, I, you know allow myself to, uh, to feel those emotions but not be sort of kidnapped by unhealthy dependencies and, they're, 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 and the unhealthy demands of that. So uh, being emotionally sober simply means that I'm comfortable being present 
with all of my feelings without any one of them defining or controlling me. And in the end, what I've learned about emotional sobriety is that with, you know, is that with each, each day that I, that I work towards this, you know, there, there, there's just that. There's work to do to get it and maintain it. As Leigh started, you know, attaining it is possible and sustaining it is possible. And I found, you know, that as time passes, the more I practice it, it becomes easier and easier. It, gets, it becomes integrated into my psyche. It becomes integrated into who I am. And I, I never forget, though, that it's not something I can do uh, on my own willpower. I have to have God's help. And, and Bill said it best you know, when he said, let us, with God's help, continually surrender these hobbling demands. Then we can be set free to live in love. And we may be able to, you know, to 12-step to ourselves and others into emotional sobriety. So when I look at this, we have a remarkable sequential process in the steps. Each step leads to the next. And eventually, what I, what, what I have found is the steps as a way of life become integrated together in a manner in which the process becomes second nature. In other words, the, the, the working of the steps becomes infused with my awakened consciousness in a way where I don't worry, you know, am I working them right? So an example, like driving a car, you know, that, that was a, at one point, that was a step-by-step -step process. You know, we were concerned at 16 or 17 years of age or whatever age that you, you learn how to drive, we were concerned with doing it right, you know, and, and there was step work involved in driving a car. I, you know, it had to become, ingrained in my consciousness so that it began to, you know, melt away. And if after 30 years of driving a car, I'm still so consumed with the step work involved of steering, applying the gas, applying the brake, you know, somewhere along in that process, you know, we, we, I can't become beholden, beholden to the dependency of, of, of applying the gas, the brake, the steering, you know, staying in between the lines. I simply can't drive that way with autonomy and freedom. You know, I, I, I couldn't drive that way because I can never trust that you're going to stay on your side of the road. You know, I, I, I can't stop thinking about the possibility of an accident when I'm in the car or running out of gas or the maintenance in my vehicle. You know, that merely the idea of driving throws me into a panic, right? We don't know what happens is, is we're going to find peace and that step in, in the same way, when we get into, when I get into the car today, I don't have to think. It just becomes, it's become an integrated activity. And the same thing with this. You know, so I, what, I, I think what I do here is we just, it's like, it's, you know, we strive towards this place. So how am I going to find peace that is at the foundation of, you know, emotional sobriety that Bill speaks of? Well, the answer is simple for me. Implement the, st the steps as a way of life until I take my last breath, right? But I'll close, you know, with this. When a, I've heard someone say, when a herd of wild buffaloes encounters a severe storm, rather than avoid it, what they do is they run into the storm. And it's as though they've had an, you know, they have sort of an instinctual sense that they can't avoid it, so they confront it. There, there, there's, a, there's an intuitive trust in the process of survival. 
So for me, part of emotional sobriety is I've learned through the step work to lean into the storms of life. And you know what my higher power does for me in, in, in turn? God allows me to develop resilience. God helps me to cultivate a, a, a deeper self-awareness. I begin to build inner strength and courage. And I, in, in so doing, I find a deeper meaning in life. And perhaps most importantly, I'm able to cultivate empathy and compassion for others. So, I, you know, leaning into the storms of life as a spiritual practice, it for me is at the heart of the transformation that comes by practicing these steps. And um, so, yeah, that's, you know, pretty much I would say that emotional sobriety for me today is putting down the dependencies one moment at a time, one day at a time, leaning into the step work, allowing other people just to be, live and let live, right? Um, allowing uh, others that I don't, I'm not so tethered to an outcome from you. I don't seek my validation through what someone else says about me, how they look at me and so forth, right? It's just kind of a, a right relationship with our higher power today. So anyways, Leah, with that, I will pass and we can open up the questions if anyone has any. Thank you so much. Thank you, Larry, for such a captivating and very rich presentation this morning. Certainly a gem for the archives, compelling, thought-provoking, and inspiring. Thank you so very much. The share ID for today's presentation, 20,445. That's 20445. Larry's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording. Stay tuned for that. And yes, we will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question, questions only, by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the last letter of your first letter of your last name. I'm Eugene Oregon. Irene Alton. Julie E.B. Susan C. Okay, this is who I heard. I heard Irene, Julie E.B., Susan C., Mary Lee, R. Who did I miss? Julie E.B.? Yes, Julie, I got you. Sima M. Sima. Okay, let's get started with this list. I have Irene, Julie E.B., Susan C., Mary Lee R., and Sima M. Irene, why don't you start with your question, please? Was there an Irene? If not, let's move on to Julie E.B. Julie, go ahead with your question. Star one to unmute. Hi, yeah, thank you so much for this presentation, very timely indeed for me, and uh, I was startled after uh, well, a certain amount of food sobriety and feeling of emotional sobriety as well, dependence on God, had a couple life events happen at the same time, and uh, I just 
am coming back to a good place, but I'm just wondering how how you do when certain what what your steps are. And I even had some people say, well, these aren't appropriate topics, you know, for these lines. And uh, you know, I Question, I just really uh, in the interest of time, please. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to trying to say. Like, what do you do when something really throws you for a loop? What are the basics? I mean, you talk, but step basics. What does your day look like or your weeks when that happens? Thanks. Yeah, well, I think it was Julie, right, Leah? Was that Julie? Correct. Yes, Julie E.B., yes. Okay. Yeah, um, so Julie, uh, what I'm taking from your question is, you know, you know, what do I do? How do I operate today? And I, I, I think, you know, like if, if difficult things happen, you know, uh, whatever life's challenges that may sort of kick the dust up, if you will, for my, my emotional state of being, you know, what do I do today? Pretty much the same things every day, right? My, my sole basis of my commitment to this spiritual program of action is to maintain and build upon a, a relationship with my higher power. That, that just I keep it very simple for me. So I do the same things whether I'm having a wonderful day, a wonderful experience, or I'm having a real rotten experience. And, un, you know, the unpredictability of life, uh, you know, the tornado sirens that were, you know, uh, or um, it could be something more significant than that. It could be uh, the death of, of, of a loved one or something. something. I do some of the same things uh, today, which is that, remember I said, Julie, that the steps for me, you know, I, I work the steps. If you were to ask me, Larry, identify, I, I probably could, in, in any situation, the steps become integrated because I continue to study them and learn them from you guys and from this book and from other sources. So it's kind of, a, you know, remaining uh, a, a fresh student every day. But whatever I'm experiencing, um, you know, I don't have a magic wand. Sometimes I am going to suffer. You know, when a panic attack comes, Julie, for me, I don't know about anybody else, but I'll just tell you for me. I, it might mean something when I say that. It might mean something different to me than it might means to you, you because, you know, we, we all have our own perception of what something might be but I know what it means to me and it is very very uncomfortable that's it's suffering it is suffering uh for me on a level it's probably the most suffering I'd experienced in my lifetime is those those types of things in just a quick burst and when that happens it's it's really no different than when I'm experiencing uh, uh, uh something beautiful in my life is I, you know, is I just deal with what's right in front of me in the present. And I see that it kind of peels away the different layers of dependencies I have. When I, you, Julie, you couldn't help me when I'm in the midst of a panic attack. No human being could. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some well-intentioned, well-trained people that I might rely upon to provide some help. But ultimately for me, any of life's life's difficulties. I have to turn and lean into God. Now, okay, what turning and leaning into God means to me today doesn't mean that I'm going to put God on a, on a timer here. Okay, God, I'll get, you know what, this is a pretty, pretty bad panic attack. I'll give you about three minutes, not the usual 10 seconds that I want relief. I'll give you three minutes. No, I sometimes, Julie, I just 
feel the fear, I lean into it, just like the herd of wild buffaloes. And sometimes I get relief and sometimes I do not. But the, the point is, is that I do not, remember I talked about the, you know, the expectations of, you know, why me? Why not me? Sometimes I have to look at those things in my prayer and meditation. You know, why not me? How, how could this be serving you, God? I ask questions. What can I do? What are the actions that I can take in the present moment that could be in alignment, in greater alignment with your will for me today? And then I wait for those intuitive thoughts to come. I take those actions. And sometimes I just have to suffer. It's kind of like putting the food down in the beginning. There was a great deal of suffering in that, in that time and uh, at, that, at that particular time. And I just had to trust. So I think what's happened for me is I could be, you know, more specific and we can talk offline, Julie, but I think for me, this comes down to trust. It's, to, it's just the trust in God. And uh, so I don't know if that helps a bit, you know, but I, I can be more specific and call me offline. Thanks so much for the question. Thank you, Julie. And next up, Susan C., your question, please. Yeah, thanks so much, Leah, as always, and Larry, for your wisdom. Um, among other things, I really heard about not allowing your attachment to a particular outcome to dominate. And let's say um, because of distortions in thinking, something's threatening your instincts, and perhaps specifically one that comes up for me, it's whatever's happening with this other person, whoever they might be, it's threatening your self-esteem. And once you can see the narrative, like you kind of hear the thoughts, you see the distortions, you, 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 hear, you see the ego, the selfishness, you know, all of, all of that stuff that comes up in the 10th step, what, how, using your 10th step or other spiritual principles or both, how do you work with those distortions, you know, when the self-esteem is the very essence is really of, of one is really being threatened using dependency and demands uh, as using Bill's language from that article to get to the other side in understanding what your dependency and demands are. Hopefully that was clear. Thanks so much. Yeah, it is, Susan. It is clear. So what I heard you, 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 you know, you talk about, you know, this, the attachments and the dependencies. And you mentioned about being threatening my self-esteem and the distortions that, that come with that. Um, so I think what's happened to me over time is that even my expectation, okay, even my expectation that my somehow something's, let's say I become aware that something, something is threatening my self-esteem, some relationship, some interaction with the world and the people in the world is threatening my self-esteem. I think what the steps allow me to do and this, this spiritual way, way of life allows me to do is I always come back to a true north for me, which is that, Larry, when you have any expectation, do you deserve an expectation to be validated? Sure, any human being does, but I don't expect it. I don't expect the validation. Do I deserve, there's many things I deserve. Why, why not me to have this disease? Why not me to face whatever, whatever uh, obstacles life throws me? You know, because there's growth and there's growth and there's self-actualization, which is an unfolding process for me and all of that. So 
that's where my attachments don't dominate me today generally. Now, sometimes they, they do, and, and things, there is that distortion, as you say, in thinking that comes about. I'm not always aware of it. If I'm not aware of it, I don't need to worry about it. If I'm aware of it, guess what? I don't need to worry about it. If I'm aware of it, I'm going to lean into these steps. I'm going to trust God, trust this process of living, spiritual living. So in either case today, I don't worry about it. Because, again, if I'm not aware of it or my thinking is skewed, you know, I can entertain those ideas. I'm distorted. Then don't worry about it. Because you know what? Today, God is everything to me today. Now, God's not going to go out. I see the ducks out here, Leah, and God's not going to feed them. If I, if I choose to feed them, uh, that's, that's for me to do. I have, I have agency in which God has given me agency to take certain actions. So I think what it is, again, is, is the work that I do today is I, I just, things kind of, they like the duck. <laughs> and I use the metaphors of animals. It washes off me. I sh- they shake themselves off, Susan. They shake themselves off, and they seem to go off in the pond calmly. That's what I do today. When I face distorted thinking, when I face anything today, I shake it off, and I do not expect, as I swim along the pond here, that I'm going to feel wonderful. You know? And in and, 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 and doing that, I remove the expectation. Remember, I fight no one or anything. I have opinions, I have preferences, but I fight with no one. I mean, in the end, I'm human. I, I may have a you know, disagreement with somebody, but I, in the end, in trusting in God, I don't, it's just, it, the water falls off of me. So I don't know if that helps a little bit, but be glad to talk to you further on that. Thanks for the question, Susan. Thank you, Susan C. Mary Lee R., your turn. Star one to unmute. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Larry. You are the monk and the marine. And um, when you, ah, there's just so many questions going. Not really questions. I leaving the results is just really big part. So forgiveness came up for me when you were talking earlier, and when you have worked through that process, and yet I still realize that that dog bites, do you have any um, any salvos or any help for that situation? Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. Um, you Boy, you brought up a wonderful topic there, uh, Mary Lee, on forgiveness. Because, um, you know, I've often, I've experienced, and, I, and, I, and I, my belief is that even in the amends process, when we make amends, um, I, I want, for example, I would like to get some forgiveness in some cases, to experience that, to experience uh, some sort of reconciliation um, or just peace around that. And it doesn't always come. But forgiveness for me is something that I need to do with God's help and only God's help. Okay, so if I don't get it right away, I keep praying until it comes. And I keep taking those true north actions, you know, those, those you, know, em, you know, empathy sort of actions, those, you know, forgiveness sort of actions until it comes. 
And when I do that repeatedly, what happens is, uh, yes, I can leave the result to God and God's timing. And you know what's happened to me, Mary Lee, is over time, I've developed greater patience. There's a spiritual patience that, that, that God has given me over time. So I, um, I think, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think you mentioned the dog bites or something. Yeah, there are, there are healthy boundaries sometimes with certain people and situations, but, but at the same time, I see, every, I see everyone as a child of God ultimately. And I keep coming back to that. Everyone is a child of God. Now, I might not agree with their behaviors. I might have to get out of the way of a, a wild swing towards my nose, okay, and, which I will do. But I'm not going to allow their behavior, their perceptions in the world, skew my relationship with my higher power. I won't allow that. So I need to see love and grace um, in them. I need to see God's love and mercy and grace in them because God helped me. And I wasn't so deserving, Mary Lee, okay? I was deserving in that I was a living, breathing human being, okay? But beyond that, if you just kept a scorecard, I don't think you'd, on, on, on someone being deserving of uh, whatever recovery has, spiritual recovery has for them, I don't know that I would have been at the top of the list on deserving that. But today, I know that God has done for me what I couldn't do for myself so I continue to look for that in others, regardless of their behavior, regardless of their skewed, distorted thinking, regardless of those things. And when I do that, I get a wave of God's grace that just uh, that washes over me. You know, it may not come right away, but it does come. So I don't know if that helps a bit, but that's that's my answer on that. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Lee. Okay, Sima M, star one to unmute. Good morning, Larry and Leah. Thank you for your presentation. Um, this is Sima M from New Jersey. Um, you've touched on a subject that um, has been, I came to OA 48 years ago, but I didn't have sustained abstinence until 10 years ago. And it was because I had to get through all of those problems. But there are times, um, as it says in the big book, that people need medical attention. Um, do you think that sometimes people that are having these problems with getting emotional sobriety might need medical uh, treatment? Oh, yeah, I get Well, and the, the big book talks about that a little bit. I'm not quoting it precisely, but we, we take good advantage of other other, you know, um, individuals that can help us. We, I don't have a monopoly on this, uh, this uh, spiritual life on that. But um, so, yes, I mean, for me, I'll just speak for me, and I don't have an opinion on outside issues on that, but I will tell you that uh, if I have a broken arm, if I, if I have a uh, – now, let, let's, let's be more extreme. If I have a brain tumor – now, I love Leah. Leah M is a wonderful, lovely person as far as I – and she's very bright one of the brightest people I, I've encountered. But I'm not going to Leia if i got a brain tumor, nor do I think she wants me to. In terms of, I'm going to a good brain surgeon, whether, whether she has a good bedside manner or not. You know, I'm going to someone who's a professional. So in that sense, I'm like, absolutely, I take advantage of, 
uh, in, in, a, in a very positive sense of good professional people that can be helpful because I think that, you know, God uses others to help us. And in this program, he uses wounded people that have transcended with his grace and mercy to help other wounded people that maybe have not experienced that transcendence yet. And we've got a blueprint for that. But if I got a, a brain tumor, trust me, I'm going to a, I'm going to find me a good brain surgeon, I think, or, or somebody along those lines, probably a team of people. So absolutely, you bet. And I think the big book supports that. So hope that helps. Thank you, Sima M, for your question. Still might call you Leia if I have one. <laughs> <laughs> See that brain surgeon, that's for sure. Okay, <laughs> Christina J., your turn to pose a question. Morning, Leah. Thank you for taking my question. And Larry, wow, wow, wow. I had a lot of things come up for me. I'll try to make my comment short and then get to my question. My comment is that uh, my core emotional dependency, starting from childhood, became a proving ground. The proving ground was my core emotional dependency, and it's wrapped me ever since then. And um, I've just realized that, you know, food became the support for that proving ground and that pain in that, that exhaustion of that proving ground. So the question, this is what I've been feeling lately because I've never done this and I've done many four steps on this proving ground and this career and all this stuff in order to walk away from this proving ground, which I must do. I must do. I feel a deep grieving is necessary in order to honor those feelings, in order to see that poor little girl, that young woman striving so hard. Um, And then I feel like a a deep healing can begin to take place. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on grieving. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. You know, Kristen, I was dropping the call, but I got got most of it, and I I got the end of it there. I had a call back in. Um, As far as grieving, yeah, I mean, my goodness, uh, grieving is a – let's – air quotes are normal human process my goodness sakes we have to get some sort of uh release and, and able to process that so grieving of any type of loss is uh is to me prior prior to this you know um for me because i was numb to most feelings any intensity of feeling uh, and, and food did a wonderful snicker bars you have no idea what i think it's better than uh in terms of numbing feelings than just about any, you know, pharmacological <laughs> type of thing. So I wasn't feeling much and I wasn't processing much. Today I can grieve loss. I think that is a demonstration of recovery. When I can see somebody in their own way, because there's no right or wrong way, as we know, of grief, of processing grief, of experiencing that, it's unique and it's customized for each of us, right? However, what I will say is what was not normal was blocking that off. Whatever my process would be for that was just numb to any feeling because it was too much for me to bear when I wasn't connected to my higher power so that I could truly feel. So, yeah, for me, absolutely, I can remember making amends to my father. My father's been gone for a number of years, but... And I did not, Christina, expect tears from me and, and um, just a grief because, and what was I grieving in that moment as I was making amends to him through that process that I did not see coming. 
I think my, I was feeling for the first time the loss of connection with him in that, in that moment, you know, as I, as I looked at some of the harms that I caused and some of the things that I did. And it just, God gave me a wonderful gift of grief over that loss that I was robbed of the connection with my father. I think God wanted that connection, right? I think love is at the core of all this. So what a gift that I was given that in that moment. So I see for others absolutely this unfolding of the ability to feel, right? And, 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 and be, there's a, a regulation of emotion, you know, regulated emotions that I was able to experience that and I'm not still grieving over that, <laughs> you know. I was able to, God allowed me to process that to a point where now I can serve God, I can talk to you, I can talk to others about that process. Uh, so I hope that helps and yes, I support you in that, you bet. Thank you. Thank you, Christina J. and thanks to everyone who posed a question this morning. And, of course, thank you, Larry, for all that you gave to us this morning, such a rich, profound, and inspiring presentation. Deep. My heart is full. Thank you. The share ID for today, 20,445. That's 20445. And we're going to close from page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation, what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows, Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.